You are one of those lucky people that can travel anywhere. Yes, ma'am. And they sometimes call you nomads. My mom says that you're homeless. Is that true? No, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. Not the same thing, right? No. My husband worked at the USG mine in Empire. I was a substitute teacher. It is a tough time right now. You may want to consider early retirement. I need work. I like work. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Welcome to Badland Spa. What the nomads are doing is not that different than what the pioneers did. I think Fern's part of an American tradition. Oh, he's going to come right through the class. My dad used to say, what's remembered lives. I maybe spent too much of my life just remembering. One of the things I love most about this life is that there's no final goodbye. I've met hundreds of people out here. And I don't ever say a final goodbye. Let's just say, I'll, I'll see you down the road. And I do. I see them again. And I can be certain in my heart. I'll see you again. Beloved listeners, this is Killer Casting, and I am Lisa Zambetti. I'm a casting director in Los Angeles, and I cast for CBS's Criminal Minds and FX's Reservation Dogs, and I've cast psychopaths, villains, victims, and appropriate of today's topic, I've cast widows and wanderers and people who've been kicked around by life and people who are damaged and trying to heal their lives. And I think it takes very special actor to pull off these kinds of roles. And we're going to be focusing on the performance of one such actor who happens to be nominated for an Academy Award for her work in the independent film Nomadland, and that is none other than Frances McDormand. I want to get under the skin of this role, pull it apart, take a microscope to it, and the actor who is portraying it. And I have got some people who are going to help me do that. People I haven't seen in a long time. So say hello to my sexy beasts. Yo, it is Brian here. Good to see you. Good, Good to see, see you, young man. You. And well, uh, hello there from down under, Dean in a very cold and wet Melbourne coming to you. Wishing I was in California at this point because it's uh, <laughs> it's going to be a very wet and cold weekend uh, down here, but very happy to be on the call and chatting about this amazing film. It's so good to see you guys. We're going to introduce our... We have a very special guest with us, by the way. But Brian, you have been working your ass off doing a couple of pilots, have you not? Um, one pilot, um, and then one that uh, was a pilot before the pandemic that went to series. That's uh, gearing up to shoot in New Zealand, which creates a whole host of complications because it was originally going to shoot in Canada, right? So now... And they have a... It's a huge change. And so they have a two week quarantine mandatory, you know what I mean? So, um, so it's, it's proving challenging and, and to, I mean, like 
they don't start their first episode till mid-May is when they first start shooting. But we came on so early because we knew we were going to lose some Canadian actors. We also knew like some things were going to have to be recast. And so we had the benefit of time to do all that right, stuff. Right, right. So. Well, but that's great that you're working, you know, and that's that's – it's, it's good that to be back at it again, for sure. Just on that point, Queensland in particular, where they've, the government's been quite active about promoting itself as a state friendly for filmmaking, has been just making a bunch of um, films because we're basically COVID-free in, in Australia. We virtually – we have, I think, uh, certainly in New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland has zero cases and has had for months. Like, that's – cases tested not deaths and so um you know tom hanks is out here at the moment doing a baz luhrmann film a biopic on elvis um another big film just got greenlit um to start out of queensland some really i forget which one it is but it's massive and there's even talk about um apparently uh i don't know whether this is true or not and but they're talking about potentially moving the marvel franchise to um to production in queensland wouldn't, wouldn't the, surprise me you've got yeah. a couple of hemsworths who already live there yeah and, right. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well i want to shift gears and introduce my guest who is one of my favorite people. She's been my mentor for many, many years. We spent all day today casting a huge project together. She is the indie queen. If you have her cast your movie, you are guaranteed to go to the Sundance Film Festival. She has discovered talents. She's going to say she didn't, but I know she did. Like Ryan Gosling, Mia Wachowski. (laughs) Yes, you did. And she is so wonderful. When you meet her, you can't believe you ever had a life without her the amazing emily schweber welcome to killer casting emily thank you lisa thank you what a nice welcome absolutely so i had to bring emily on because you know nomadland is an indie film and um probably you know had some struggles to get made although francis mcdormand you know was the executive producer she did find the original book that it's based on nomadland and she decided to go with chloe zhao to be her director and to adapt it for the screen so we've all recently or not so recently watched nomadland and of course francis is nominated for an academy award so i wanted to jump into it emily any first thoughts about when you when you watched nomadland what was your immediate sort of hit about the the movie to you well i just should say that francis mcdormand is my favorite actress Mm -hmm. and i have her picture on my wall in the office and it says (laughs) emily's favorite actress and um I mean, I have a lot of pictures of actors on the walls, a lot of articles, but I think she's absolutely amazing. I will watch her in anything. I love the movie. I just voted for the Independent Spirit Awards, which always takes place the day before the Oscars, and just voted for the yeah, movie across so the board. So did I. Not to, I mean, we're not supposed to tell tales, but yes, I, I actually voted for Independent Spirit too, and I did the same thing. And I was surprised because I thought I was going to vote for somebody else, but I ended up voting for Francis. But I did have issues with this film. Um, Bye, Bye. What was your immediate hit? I'm just looking for immediate hits on the film and we'll get, get into the deep end of it. No, my immediate hit was, I immediately thought of Mr. Inbetween, oddly enough. Like the thing that I loved about the movie from word go was how understated it was like the camera. I I kept coming back to this notion Mm -hmm. of the camera as Mm -hmm. a witness, not a judge, 
just there. Yeah. Not even as a participant, but just as a witness. And, uh, you know, when I think that reality TV is a terrible, terrible scourge culturally. Yeah. I think it's shite, like all of it. There's nothing on the landscape that I find enjoyable about it. It's all contrived. It's all manipulation. And to me, this felt like if we want to talk about real life, this is about as close as I think a lot of films have come since mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the auteurs of I, the 70s. I would agree that I think Chloe Zhao is attempting for that cinema verite style of documentary filmmaking. And for the for the a huge chunk of the beginning of the film, I was right there with her, and I definitely felt that. Dean, what what are your thoughts immediately? And you just saw this yesterday, so yeah, um, so, so very fresh <clears throat> and, and very raw. But um, you know, I, I, you guys live in the states, and I, and I live in Australia, and in some ways they're very similar uh, cultures, and in other ways they're not. Ten minutes in, I was really quite disturbed by the film, and if you'd asked me to classify it. I would I would put it in the horror genre. I get that. It it was just bleak and almost unbelievable to the point, you know, and we have homeless people here in Australia as well, right? Not like it's it's uh, but it was just it it was just such a sad and and bleak kind of view initially of her and her life and the landscape, not the landscape physically, but the place that she was in as a person. So yeah, I, I really struggled in those first sort of 10 to 15 minutes to put that aside and, and sort of focus on What you on say film. about being a horror film, I hear so keenly because as I was watching it, I was getting so agitated and upset because I think my deepest fear of my life other than something happening to my children is that I will end up homeless, houseless, on my own. At least in the beginning, you think that's what her situation is with no one who would even know if I lived or died and to be in that sort of desperate situation that this character Fern finds herself in. Emily, do you, what do you think about that? It brings up a lot of feelings and it is hard to watch and hard to relate to. Mm-hmm. When we're all in our in our comfortable houses and have everything that mm-hmm. you know that we need, but isn't that what mm-hmm. makes a great movie to make you feel all these these different things and to see into a world that that we don't really right. know anything about? I mean, it it just looks so desperately difficult. So Fern, the character Fern, starts out in the beginning of the movie. It, it's very clear they set it up. You know, within the first couple of minutes, she's. You know, the, her town has literally lost its all of its jobs, all of its industry, like many, many towns. It just reminded me some of the mining towns that are, you know, in the in the south of the United States. You know, this this town empire, Nevada, has lost its sheet metal, whatever mine. And so everybody has lost their jobs, including her. They, well, they've they, even they, lost zip, their they've lost their zip code. Like the zip right. code was taken away. Ex- Right. And not only that, but she's lost her husband. So she's a widow on top of that. And you just see that in just the first few moments, you get it, that she's putting her stuff in storage, taking out what she needs. And there's a beautiful moment, you know, where this is the thing, Brian, you know, actors with objects can be the most cringy kind of acting because they're over, they're making too precious an object that 
shouldn't be uh, or or whatever. And so she has this moment in the beginning where she's, you know, packing up some dishes and some clothing that she's smelling. And it was just such a quiet, intimate moment that I it immediately I was and I'm looking for uh, falsity in actors. I'm looking for any hint of fakeness and acting. And I'm and, you know, Francis, from the beginning, I just believed this quiet personal moment that is not showing me that she's grieving. She's just grieving. So that was Mrs. Lundegaard on the floor in there. And I guess that was your accomplice in the wood chipper. three people in Brainerd. And for what? For a little bit of money. There's more to life than a little money, you know. Don't you know that? And here you are. And it's a beautiful day. Hi there, listeners. You know, we love putting the pod together, and we certainly hope that you enjoy hearing from us, but we would love to hear from you. How do we do this, you say? Well, if you visit our website, killercastingpod.com, you'll see a widget there for a little service called SpeakPipe, and you can record a message and send it to us as an audio file. So whether it's a question about an episode we've already done, maybe you've got a suggestion about a topic or a film or a series that we could jump into, we would love to hear from you, and you can be on the pod. We'll hear from you soon. Bye. I think this goes hand in hand. I mean... The overarching thought that I had about Francis McDormand, and I'm going to go on a, I'm going to go on a jag just for a second, so forgive me. But it's like, it reminded me of um, Anne Bancroft in Home for the Holidays. Uh, Anne Bancroft has this scene where she's talking to Holly Hunter, and she takes off her dress, and she's in her bra and her slip, and she's smoking or whatever, and she takes off her earrings, and then she takes off her wig. She's wearing this brightly colored red wig in the movie. She takes it off and underneath this like this haggard, like white hair that's not, it's messed up and unkempt. And it's like, and I've always thought about that scene. That is the bravery that Anne Bancroft showed in that was like remarkable. And I thought the same thing of Frances McDormand, like for her to have that quiet moment, it is an outgrowth of her absolute bravery and courage to like take all of the artifice away. There's no makeup. 
like her hair is like roughly cut. And it's a shame that in this culture, in this town, like the fact that she's not wearing makeup is an act of bravery to be that vulnerable in front of the camera. But because she because she does strip away the artifice, it allows for that quiet moment, I think, to ring true, right? Because the rest of it, the physical, is is also laid bare so that those those things are working in concert together. If she had been like in a typical kind of Hollywood mode, like made up or whatever. Or, it, it or made rung. down, like dark circles right. under her eyes right. and extra right. things. Emily, what do you think about that? Are you responding to that? I mean, I mean, she, I mean, I don't think that she, we've seen her not wear makeup at award yeah, shows. That's, what, I mean, that, that's, that, that's exactly that's, what I thought. The same thing in Ebbing, in Three Billboards and Ebbing and yeah. other things. But everything is very economical. I mean, there's not, there are no, there's no, extra i mean she she really there's there's not a lot of dialogue if it, you know in the performance and not a lot of there's no complaining about her husband or i mean it, it's it's very spare which is so beautiful it's so disciplined this adaptation but did she find and the it's book edited because you said a, that she yeah. did but i thought yeah. i thought the director found the book no, she didn't. Peter Sears, who actually is in the movie, has a little role in the movie, is her um, production company partner. And he had read the book and he recommended she read it. And she did. And then she went to the Toronto Film Festival and she saw The Rider, which Emily has seen. I have not seen. And she was like, I have to meet this director. And so she connected Chloe with um, the book and chose her to adapt it. And at first, there wasn't the character of Fern. At first, because the book is mainly about Swanky and Linda May. And at first, it was... I mean, at first, Frances wasn't going to be in it, and then she was in it, but she was going to play Linda May. And, you know, but then they realized that they needed this outsider, this outsider to come into this nomad community, which I think is really, in was is such a brilliant thing to do. I'm actually more interested in Fern's journey in some ways than the other nomads. But anyway, so they 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 created the role of Fern, who had just lost her husband and and this real thing that really did happen in Empire, Nevada. And then they kind of put her into the real world of Linda May, who was a real person and Swanky, who's a real person and Bob Wells, who's a real person. And almost every single person you see on screen, including the teenagers that they run into, they're all them. They, that's who they found, you know, shooting the B-roll and scouting. That's who they came across but uh, just getting back to Francis I think I agree with Emily in that this is not the first time you know we've seen Francis stripped down it's like she's almost she's like making a statement by it almost in her career in these last 10 years and I was thinking I was like you know is this basically the same character from three billboards but just in a different circumstance but then I went back today and I watched and it's a very different character on what you can and cannot say on a billboard. I assume you can't say nothing defamatory and you can't say fuck, piss, or cunt. That right? Or anus? I think I'll be all right then. I guess you're Angela Hayes' mother. That's right. I'm Angela Hayes' mother. So 
know, Mildred Hayes, why did you put up these billboards? My daughter Angela was murdered seven months ago. It seems to me the police department is too busy torturing black folks to solve actual crime. What the hell is this? Dixon, I'm in the middle of my goddamn Easter dinner. Sorry, kids. I know, Chief, but I think we got kind of a problem. Sunshine beating on a good time. I'd do anything to catch your daughter's killer. I don't think those billboards is very fair. The time it took you to get out here whining like a bitch, Willoughby. Some other poor girl's probably out there being butchered right now. We've had two official complaints about those billboards. From who? The lady with a funny eye. A lady with a funny fucking eye? And a fat dentist. There's a lot of good friends of Willoughby in this town, Miss A. Ow! Ah! You didn't happen to drill a little hole in the dentist today, did you? Of course not. Huh? I said, of course not. I'm sorry about Angie, but the town is dead set against these billboards. You know who threw that can? What can? How about you, sweetheart? Uh, no, I, I didn't really. Go, girl. Hey, fuckhead! What? Don't say what, Dixon, when she comes in calling you a fuckhead? Keep a case in the public eye. The better your chances are getting it solved. And when I see the sun. You know, if you hadn't stopped coming to church, you'd have a little bit more understanding of people's feelings. All this anger, man. It just begets greater anger. In three, two, one. And as sad as the spectacle of these billboards might be. This reporter, for one, hopes this finally puts an end to the strange saga of the three billboards outside. This doesn't put an end to shit, you fucking retard. This is just a fucking start. Why don't you put that on your good morning, Missouri fucking wake up broadcast, bitch? I mean, Fern has an in, is a gentleness to her and almost a shyness. And a bird-likeness to her, even the way she walks, it's kind of, it's just very interesting to watch how she sort of, she walks kind of, I can't, almost, she toddles when she walks. And then later, you see her later, um, much later in the film when she's walking through the rocks, she's like a meerkat or a prairie dog as she's kind of running away from uh, Dave's, she's kind of running away from Dave's character and kind of popping up in these rocks. And and, and it's just so interesting to me, um, the physicality that she takes on. You mentioned um, her being an outsider, Lisa, and I think, uh, well, I wonder about how important the perspective of um, Chloe Zhao being Chinese-born, educated, partly in London and then to the US. So she's bringing, and I haven't seen the, her previous film, The Writer, although I'm inspired to do so now, but, you know, both set in the West. And and I, I saw an interview, sorry, I read an interview with her. The line that I remember about it was, they said, oh, you know, why are you so fascinated with the sort of badlands of the US? And she said, well, they're so real. The places are so real. The landscape's so real. And she said, I grew up in China where lies are just everywhere. And this is the opposite of that. Where lies are everywhere. L- lies are everywhere <gasps> in China. Oh, my God. And so it, so she, she's sort of looking for the truth of characters and landscapes and things like that. Emily, what is the writer about? I haven't seen it. Well, it's a, it, so there are, no, there are no real actors in it. It's all real people in the whole movie. Um, it's about a, rodeo, a young rodeo writer and um, 
and his family and how they live on Pinecrest Reservation and how he heard himself. Like if he rode again, he would die. I mean, he had to completely change his life as a young man and not be what he wanted to be and, and find something else, you know, work with horses or, and then there, there's a character that um, is another rodeo rider who is brain damaged and he visits him. He's his friend. He's his best friend. I mean, everyone in it is the real character, his family. But it's not a documentary. But know, it's not a documentary. It's not a documentary. No, it's, but it's like the recreation of what, of, of their story with the real people. It's really beautiful. It won tons of awards and, and you should see it. Because she, she got to, I mean, this is a, a different kind of a filmmaking. This is a filmmaking that probably came from weeks and months of research yeah. and living on, on the reservation, living with the families, getting to know them, befriending them, you know, being, being welcomed and trust and yeah. pu putting, putting sort of the story back together with them. Yeah. It is not your normal studio experience i don't think yeah um the second scene in the movie is where francis goes fern goes to the rv office she's been driving all night and she arrives at this rv park and she goes into the reception area and she's trying to fight you know get her spot right and the receptionist is like mm, i don't know i don't see your name and there's this quiet desperation that francis has like okay check this and the moment and then the, the second the nanosecond the woman says oh yes there's your name there's this moment i mean i i rewatched it over and over there's this eye flicker that sh that francis does that tells you everything about holy fuck, if my name wasn't on there, I would have nowhere to park. I'm like, like everything is relying on this <laughs> sweet. Did you hear what she said? She said, try MCD. What's MC Which, MCD? That's, that's her name. You know, like oh. if someone were looking for McDormand and they were oh, looking at MAC even... or MCC. Oh my God, yes. She said, said so oh my it, was, God. it was a personal, you know, way to personalize it. Right, right. I mean, but that moment, I, I don't know, it just, there are certain moments in movies that are just nanoseconds, but they just, boom, they just go to your heart. And and that was one of them. It's And and this is what I'm saying about the editing. So Chloe Zhao, which is, isn't this kind of rare, except for in the Coen Brothers movies, Emily, that the director and writer also gets to be the editor, right? That's that's not normal, right? I mean, it, it, it has happened. There are. Right. But this there are writer director editors, but you know not not a lot of them. right. But this movie is edited with an obscene discipline. It's like the minute after she has that reaction, boom, we're we're away. Like there's like I think you were saying there's no fat. There's no. It's very spare. It's only as long as you need, and then we're into the next thing that she's got to deal with. Um, I just, I just found that. Yeah, really it reminds me, Lisa, of um, um, uh, it was a quote, a book I read, uh, Walter Murch's book. Have you guys read it? I think it's called A Journey into Journey Through Light or something like that. So Walter Murch, the editor, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it was him who said he likes to cut on the intention. So he doesn't, he doesn't need to hold mm. to you know see the whole thing and in a reaction and then wait a beat or anything. It's like once you understand what's happening, boom. And as Fern continues, she goes to this Amazon warehouse and she's like badges in. Again, the storytelling is almost jump cut, but you can make the connection. 
right? That she's become one of these seasonal workers at Amazon. But but it wasn't, it's not fictionalized. It felt so real. Like if you were going, going to work at a busy season at Amazon, what it would be like. I worked in, um, I worked for a company, McMaster Car. They provide tool um, parts. It's massive, this this company. In the warehouse I worked at was massive. And there is, there's a rhythm to like, packing the boxes with the tape, you know, there's a, a ritual, you know, I mean, you know, walking down the aisles and like, you know, busting chops with somebody. I mean, like all of that is there. The thing I find fascinating is that Amazon had to approve them shooting in that warehouse. You know what I mean? And for them, for them to look at the scripts and go, oh yeah, this, this puts us in a fine light. Yeah. I mean, like they weren't worried about anything like the the portrayal of their company. And I think that that's, I think, I think it's, the messaging is a little insidious, actually. I, I think that they got one in under their nose a bit, you know, kind of, you know, how this, how this seasonal work and they, they pay, they pay for the, you know, the plot or whatever, which is 375 a month. You know what I mean? It's like, like, oh, look at how generous this company is. I mean, I think, I think, but I think at that moment, that scene, like, is just one part of, like, a broader message about <laughs> the state of affairs in this country. You know what I mean? Um, I think it's very clever that they got Amazon to sign off. I think what was more meaningful, though, was that after the job was done, which was a great job for her, she made money, she had this place, she had... A, a, you know, the kind of the family of these seasonal workers. But then after that, she couldn't find work at all. I mean, there was just nothing she was qualified to do. That was, I think, that was hard to watch. And Brian, maybe maybe the reason why Amazon were happy to do it was uh, that they read the book, because uh, although I haven't read the book in one of the reviews, uh, one of the decisions in the screen in, in writing the screenplay was that they removed um, a massive element of the book, which was essentially almost a Marxist kind of a message about the way that, you know, these seasonal workers, uh, these 60-year-olds that have, you know, happy to work the minimum wage and work in, you know, that Amazon factory looked like a chicken farm. You know, it was just people, you know, treated as objects. And, right. and we've all heard the stories about, you know, they're not allowed to be, you know, take bathroom breaks and this, that and the other. It didn't show any of that. It was, you know, it showed quite a, an okay kind of workplace. But apparently that was a huge part of the book that they just went. Well, according not get to Francis, the, Amazon really does have this program for itinerant workers, for older itinerant camper workers. I think it's called like the camper club or whatever. So they embraced being shown hiring all of these older workers and giving them a good job and everything. So, but I think you're right. They did kind of get it under their noses a bit, Brian. Um, but she, the very important thing about this is she meets Linda May, who, I mean, I knew this was not a real actress. I knew this was just her. And she, for me, just carries the film in this very authentic, yeah. I mean, no, I think she's, she's I think fantastic. she's, I, I think she is, so sweet and so adorable. I mean, I just like, and she was so like caring of Fern, you know? I mean, like there was just such a, it was, it, uh, may I mention this later? The, um, like with the use of, of non-actors, 
or whatever. I I, I did a uh, did a roundtable with uh, David Pesquese the other week, a couple weeks ago. We sat down and talked. We talked about Mamet a little bit, and Mamet says the interchange between two people is always occurring, always unplanned, and is always fascinating. Now, in the in the course of a fiction scene between two people, like to me, that is absolutely where it's at. And so I was thinking about that when I was watching Fern and um, what's her name again? Linda May. And it was just like, it is, I mean, like Linda May to see them. It was, it, it was all of that. Like the, the exchange between them, the light between them was just so authentic and just, genuine and and it was just fantastic i just loved it and and up until this point up until you know like about a third of the way into the film every single person you see on screen is is a real person right and and i feel like that in that enhanced what francis was doing i mean she was like unacting she was like stripping down and stripping down and stripping down to like just the most basic almost childlike wonderment I mean, we've said it's a raw performance, but it's like an un, it's a stripping down performance for me. It's like she's bending. And, and I've also I've noticed about watching her work in the past few films that I've been reviewing, like McDormand bends the characters to her instead of other actors who transform into characters like Meryl Streep or maybe Holly Hunter, who sort of transform themselves and become something else. I feel like she bends the characters and flexes them into under her skin, um, which is just very different from the way other actors work. Um, and I think being around real people enhance that. And it's when she gets into scenes with an actual actor that for me, it just started, it started to fall apart a little bit, you know, once, and David Strathairn is one of my, favorite actors. I mean, he can really do no wrong. But in this, it jarred me so much to notice him. And all of the scenes with him felt scripted to me. And I wish that maybe if they, they wanted to cast an actor, maybe a total unknown actor, you know, who could, you know, hold their own in a scene with Francis, but not be such an iconic, non-threatening <laughs> you know, bumbly guy. I don't know. Emily, what do you think? I mean, I don't think that he's, it's not like seeing, I mean, he's, he's a wonderful, wonderful actor. And, um, but I don't, I don't, he didn't take me out of it because it's not like um, a mainstream movie star. He's sort of a, you know, a real, a really wonderful low key actor who I don't think a lot of people might, you know, know his name. It'd be maybe he'd be recognizable, that guy. But I, I think he was. Um, I think if you know if they had to cast someone in that role, it was not going to be a real person. Me, me he too. He felt right to me. I mean, we're in the casting well, world, I mean, so there, of course to that we know point, there was no casting director. You know, I mean, Francis knew him and brought him in right. and she knew her her very good friend right. melissa smith mm -hmm. that she brought in to play her sister so this was you know obviously you know an, an, a relationship with the sister i felt that's when it broke yeah. down for me yeah, me too like that that felt very very active Big time you know i, I mean uh but with david straight and i and i remember i 
when I saw him on screen, I remembered like years and years ago, I had forgotten that he and uh, French McDormand had done Dark Rapture originally, the original production of that, like years and years ago. I mean, like the history that they have together is, I think they've done other stage plays together. I mean, you can't, for me, there are, I don't think you can find two more understated actors on the planet. I mean, who can do so much by doing so little, you know, the, like the whole thing with the, the one bit with the box, you know, Dean said something, you know, about the horror thing. And, and I, and I think it's in our storytelling, we have been become so conditioned to expect the bad thing to happen. We've, we're always on, we're always on edge for like, oh, it's right around the corner. You know what I mean? And so, cause I did feel that, that, that feeling is or the well. love story to happen, right? Or the loves, you, or that they're gonna, right? The expectation, well, I mean, all of that. But it was there was tension oh, yeah. there, but there were also moments of of appreciating the nature and the world of being on the oh, road yeah. and and being far away from everything. So there were these moments in between that that did not have tension and that were not um, did not make you feel oh like you sure were sure sure for her, but the. Like the beautiful, like the stunning visual yeah. landscapes. The the moment of the moment of the most heartbreaking moment for me in the entire film was when he's trying to be helpful, grabs the box, and it, and he's just like so, and she's just like go. I mean, like it was the oddest thing for her to say, go over there, not get away from me, you know, not get out of here, but go over there. And his response, I thought, was so sweet. It was it was so sad to me. It's like, you don't have to shout. And 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 that's why I thought of Anne Bancroft. That's why I thought of Anne Bancroft and Home for the Holidays, because David Strathairn is in that movie as this hapless, like sheepish guy from her high school days who's run a, a bad streak, and he's just this kind of like hangdog guy. And it's like I just love that about him. There's always that element. There's this element of deep sadness. Oh yeah, absolutely. About straight Theron. I, I and everything that he does, I just I, I love. agree. But that scene for me that you just described, I watching it again today, I was like, this feels scripted. This it just did not. Her acting is very different in that scene than with all the other people she's encountered. You know. For, for for me that's that's what i observed you know and i believe me i love him and i think emily i think he is pretty i mean he was in the born whatever the fuck oh no i know he he's oh he's good night and good luck and, and so many good movies but he's uh, good night yeah. and good luck is like the kind of first real starring thing that he it had. didn't jar me out so of the movie at, though no 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 he fit in the world for me yeah i thought so too dean any thoughts uh, yeah, uh, he didn't bother me. I, I, I guess you guys look at it, the three of you are all in the field of casting and so you notice those things, whereas for me, I'm like, oh, there's David Strathairn, okay. But he, as as you've already said, his well, performance that's is so right. understated. You, but yeah, I, I know I'm making you your clopped, point. The fact that you clocked yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I did clock yeah. that it was him and that – and if you and and describing the movie to someone, they'd say, "Oh, who's in it?" And I'd say, "Well, Francis McDormand and David Strathairn, and then no one else you know, right?" But uh, but it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it didn't bother but me I, that, that I recognized. But you know, like this is the thing that cast. This is a casting director thing. When we see an actor in a movie that is like when I when I caught sight of him because he doesn't speak right away, you kind of catch sight of him serving soup or whatever. Because we're inside, we're like, okay, he's gonna be 
He's not, David's fucking straight there and is not there to, to serve soup, you know? He's gonna have something significant. And that happens all the time in films where we, you know, Brian and Emily and I will see a, an actor that we know but maybe hasn't broken through and we're like, okay, that guy's gonna be the bad guy or that guy's gonna be something. So because I was anticipating that, it took me out. I find it really interesting that he wasn't a part of any of the promotions that I saw on television, like any of the TV commercials, mm-hmm. he wasn't featured at all. Mm-hmm. It was really McDormand in yeah. those scenes, like well, you yeah. know, with the with the women and like Bob Wells, and that was basically Ugh. that was basically the extent. But he was never David Strathairn was it was never like kind of featured in any of the the television. I was really surprised to find out today. It's like oh. Shakespeare was it? What? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I feel I, like I love him. I love him to pieces. I do too. Um, but and then and then um, then you know his real son plays his real son, which is cool. And I and I and I dug that. And are you um, kidding? Really? Yeah. And his real son is oh, a, is, is a musician, and that's and that's connected. So I mean, I I understand all of that, and and I thought his son did a great job, and. But I mean, the farther away you get into that story, the farther away you get from the book. Obviously, that's not part of the book at all. And that's not part of the real people who are. And and for me, it started turning into a different movie. Now, I know very well that they're not going to end up together. I know that that you have not created this character who has, you know, has struggled with poverty. And now she's finally kind of feeling on her own and and a survivor and then she's not going to end up in a guest house with her fucking 67 year old boyfriend you know to ride into the sunset you know Frances McDormand is not going to have that happen so I knew that wouldn't happen but it just started feeling very acty sceney to me you know towards the end that it looks like I'm alone in that I guess I'm I'm on my own for that now that I now that I know that it was his son like the no, I was just gonna say now that I know that it was his actual son, like the scene at the piano is like mm-hmm. really even even a bigger deal. I was just gonna say there was a funny moment after David Strathairn's character Dave, um, Dave leaves leaves her to go live with his son. Um, she's walking alone through all of the places where they were. And she goes by a movie theater and it says it's showing The Avengers, which could not be a more different movie <laughs> than this movie. And I just thought that was such a great comment upon it. I know? absolutely, I absolutely clocked that. I was just like, oh, oh cool. yeah, cool, yeah, cool, yeah. Cool. no, I, I thought it was a great little touch. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I love the scene when she goes back to the house where she lived with her husband. Because if you ever go back to some place that you grew up and it's someone else's house or, um, I mean, I just, it always looks different, you know, it's smaller or it's just different than you saw in your mind, especially if you grew up in it or had a relationship there. It just brings back so many emotions. Yeah. And I just thought that was so beautiful. I thought it was beautiful too. And she didn't, it wasn't maudlin. It wasn't too precious. It was just observational. I, you know, I, I, I loved it. I, I loved all that. It was just this certain portion in the center that took me out of it. 
Um, and I also was like, what is, I'm just, I love that Chloe Zhao is like not telling you what the message is, but you know, there's a difference between people who are nomadic because kind of like you, Brian, a little bit, you're, you're born to roam. You know, you can't quite, at certain points you're like, you can't stay in a certain place. You need to roam. And other people who have no choice, they cannot be, they cannot afford a house. They can't even afford a fucking studio apartment. In fact, the real swanky, who I saw an interview with, you know, she'd been a mom for 18 years. And then when it came time, you know, her husband passed away and it became time for her to get Social Security. She had no work. She didn't have anything in Social Security, you know, and she couldn't afford anything except her van. And so she's forced into this lifestyle. And it's just such a difference between those two. That's a dichotomy there. And sometimes I felt like I wasn't sure what the message was. The message is not that we should have our people in our 60s like working in a fucking beet farm and hauling things and not having health care and not having, you know, a safety net that they can't get sick and they can't miss work, you know. Yet others are compelled to do so. Even if you had a million dollars, you would still be in a van, you know, roughing it and not needing to have a mortgage, but I don't think you know it was I mean? only about the message. It's just showing us what this life is like for us to 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 see it and 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 think about it and question it and yeah. in this way and and understand a different lifestyle. I thought it was an interesting construct in the screenplay that the film is bookended by her visit to the storage depot. The cinematography is, you know, kind of almost Western-esque. Um, you know, it's, it's lots of wide shots and that, that incredible, uh, it's Nevada, isn't it? That it's, it's where, she, you know, where, she, where the storage locker is, the town empire. I think it's, it's, it's right next to Burning Man, apparently, of all things. But the movie's bookended by the, those two visits to the, the storage locker, the first time where she's choosing, you know, what she's going to take with her and into, um, into Vanguard. And as you said, Lisa, she's, you know, holding, I think it's her husband's coat that she's smelling. And so, you know, she's, she's still holding on to those memories and uh, she's still connected to that. And then at the end, literally the closing scene is where she goes back and again, she's at the same place and, and the guy says, are you sure? And she says, yeah, I don't want any of that stuff. And she takes a walk through the house. And obviously that's the house that, you know, she lived in with her husband. And then there's the scene where she gets to the front door uh, I think the camera's behind her as she's walking and then there's a front shot and there's just this little smile on her face and it sort of seems to say that she's reached a point of peace and then she literally walks down and, and then turns left and just walks out of shot and, and, and we go to the titles. And one of the comments that I read about the film was that if you think that this is celebrating her freedom, that the film celebrates the freedom of these people. As uh, you just said, Emily, but it's about choice. She doesn't have a choice. She's, you know, she's, she's well, I don't in... think that, necess- that that's not, but, yeah. But she does I don't think it's just that. I think it's, well, it's a lot but, but of she's things. But in, she's in such a situation that, as she says to the to the daughter in the, oh, sorry, to her ex-student in the, in the, um, the shop, oh, well, no, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. There's a difference, right? And, and the kid says, yeah, yeah, there's, there's a difference. But, yeah. but, she, but, you know, but she wouldn't have grown up going, wow, I can't wait till I turn 60 and go and, you know, live in, a, live in an RV. And, and, and even if myself. she were celebrating her freedom, it doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah. 
Right, 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 right. She has very few choices. Okay, not no choice, but she is very limited in her choices Mm -hmm. and she's making the best of a bad situation throughout the whole film would be my view. But the thing is that that's, that's... that's that's what I that's my quandary is that she is presented with choices, right? Dave's character says, You can stay here, you can live here. And he's not putting anything on that relationship. He's like, You can live in the guest house. Her sister offers her this place. And so then I feel like, okay, she's making the choice that she'd rather be itinerant than have that security, which is a a strong turn from, you know, shitting in a bucket and and having to do that and having to move your car all the time and and take at the bulletin board and taking any job you can. I mean, there's desperation and there's choice, but I don't know. That turn for me was just, I don't know. It just didn't work for me for some reason. As much as I loved the performing, I just felt like I'm so worried about her in the first half of the movie. I'm so glad she's got a place to go. And then, and she then doesn't it's like she doesn't it. she doesn't go and she can't mm. but I understand she can't be the, I understand but that was not just that moment to take charity in, in 10 yeah, years yeah. maybe she would take that offer and live in a, in right, a guest house right 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 it's, I guess I or, just I mean, to like care the, of thought, her. The, the thought that I I mean the thought that I had was that okay so we've we've spanned a year basically maybe a little more than a year right from time of storage unit to storage unit and you can make a you can make a case that it's like okay like she needed that she needed to go back she needed to close up so that she could go back to where Dave was you know what i mean like she could make that decision i mean it's left so open ended but the the thing that i the takeaway that i i had in terms of messaging wasn't specific to the movie itself necessarily but in my neighborhood in Hollywood, there are RVs all over the streets, right? They're tent cities, you know? And I'll be honest, I mean, like, they're a scourge. Like, they're a pain in the ass. And I make all kinds of assumptions about who inhabit those RVs and who inhabit those tents. And maybe some of those assumptions are correct, but I bet you a lot of them aren't. You know what I mean? And so I think the film, very elegantly, very simply forces us as an audience if that's something that we have to contend with that's something that we see on the street and i'm sure there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast in all parts of the world all parts of this country who see tent cities like where they live or see rvs you know what i mean people living in vans and i i hope that it the people who see the movie think about what brought those people there? And maybe it is. Maybe it is a choice that they have. I feel like this. I feel like this. This undercurrent of tragedy and trauma for so many of the the main players of you know the no man like Bob talking about his son. Mm. Oh. You know David not being you know David not being the greatest dad. You know like they all had something that that brought them to the road. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was reminded mm-hmm. of my my granddad. You know, my granddad. Lost both of his parents. His mother died of 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 a disease. His his father was killed by a runaway milk truck carrying bootleg beer. He lived. He you know he grew up in the south side of Chicago. He lived with his grandmother and grandparents for a couple of years, and then at like seventeen, he was like, "F this," and he hit the road, and he hoboed. You know, he he thumbed it down to San Antonio. You know, and that was driven by a trauma. You know, and I think that that's that is so interlaced in all of this. And the guy it's that just, had the PTSD. 
Yeah. And he yeah, couldn't, yeah, he yeah. Couldn't yeah, be all in those people are real, including the kid that she meets and she kind of, you know, gives him her lighter. And that, so that, yeah. that real, that's a real guy, Derek Endes. And he really, at the age of 17, left home and has been traveling by train. I mean, hitching like a hobo on trains all of his life. You know, and his parents do worry about him. And, you know, it's just I mean, it is really interesting, but there's nothing will will ever beat for me. Bob Wells monologue about his son. I mean, and this is what I mean. That is. Compare his story with David Strahan talking about his. I mean, I just can't compare the reality of Bob Wells was so just. Oh, just tensile, just, I, I, it was just on me. It was just in me, you know, the way that he, he told that story and it cost him so much to tell that story. It's incredible. Mm, yeah. You know, I mean, the, the him playing him, obviously, mm. you know. Surely um, you, you, you can't watch this film without at least once being, you know, reminded of the grapes of wrath, isn't it? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's a retelling it's it's an uh, an updated version of of that right um or yeah. or even on the road too you know what i mean like the the, the people on the edges mm-hmm. of polite society or what is considered like normal or you know that's something that this country has never contended with well mm-hmm. ever right yeah never uh, i also had well, the strange perhaps the strange connection but at one point i thought about the big short and because in the real in real life, the town of Empire closed down in, I think it was 2011, so after the GFC, and this this movie could be seen as as a sequel to to the Big Short, right? This is now we're 10 years down the track, and now it's people paying the price for you know losing their jobs and losing their homes and losing their their regular income and losing their connection to their the community that they lived in for many, many years. And, and this is one of the realities of, of that, uh, it seems to me. Well, um, like, I, I think I said this off air, but I went back and I watched, you know, you know, Frances McDormand won for far, won an Academy Award for Fargo and three billboards, but she was also nominated for Mississippi burning, almost famous North country. And now she's, yeah. So, you know, so I went back and I looked and, um, you know, there are some outward facing characters like, you know, Marge and Fargo is a character. And um, and but I thought Mississippi Burning. Oh, my God, Emily, I watched that one scene that she has. And there's always a scene that, you know, that's the Oscar scene. That is the scene. That's the line that got her the Oscar. And in Mississippi Burning, she's got this little monologue with Gene Hackman where she's like, you know, you grow up with racism and it's you you learn it in kindergarten you learn it in high school and then you marry it and the way she said Mm. marry it i'm like bing (laughs) that's the oscar clip right there it's not good for you to be here why it's ugly this whole thing is so ugly Have you any idea what it's like to live with all this? People look at us and only see bigots and racists. Hatred isn't something you're born with. It gets taught. 
At school, they said segregation's what's said in the Bible. Genesis 9, verse 27. At seven years age, you get told it enough times you believe it. You believe the hatred. You live it. You breathe it. You marry it. Did you say you had a um, Francis McDormand story, Emily, before we <laughs> log off that you're going to tell well, me? Okay. So, a long time ago, I was invited, I was casting assistant. I was invited to a screening that night, you know, and I had no idea what it was. You know, that's the best way to see a movie, right? You have no, you haven't read anything about it. You haven't heard anything about it. You don't know what it is. But I thought I would go, you know, movie theater in Westwood. And I, you know, I, went in to see the movie. I went by myself and it was Fargo, but I think wow. it was maybe the first screening of it. I don't think that, I think it was more to get an audience reaction or um, I don't, there wasn't any, I think it was, it was, it was early. And so I walked out, I was the first one out of the theater and there were the Coen brothers and Francis McDormand sitting on a folding table, just waiting to see, you know, the, the, the reaction of, you know, or maybe they were waiting to see their friends or their agents. I don't know, but nobody else was out there. And I walked up to them like a zombie. And I just said, that was the best movie I've ever seen in my entire life. And I walked away and Francis McDormand goes, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> I just left. I didn't like try to chat them up or be like, oh, that was so great. I just said that like, ah, and it is my favorite movie. Yeah, me too. Fucking amazing movie. Well, my dear, who can beat that story? Not me. Um, Not me. She's got so many other stories, you guys. Just she should tell you about the time that she was sitting in the audition for LA Confidential with Guy. What's his fuck? And what's his fuck? And what's his fuck? And she was there anyway. And Titanic and The Matrix. Anyway, she's been there. She's done that. She's amazing. Thank you. I know you had a long day today. And I know I basically, you know, threatened you with dire consequences if you didn't come and be on my podcast. <laughs> but I thank really Thank you for appreciate being with me it. every day and being so great. We're having so much fun. We are. We project. really are. Um, beasts, what can I say? It's great to see your mugs. I've missed you. And this has been great. And I'll be seeing you soon to talk about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And thank you all. Anything else you want to say before I sign off, guys? No, it's uh, no. it's been a great chat. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to read the okay. book about Nomadland. Yeah. Well, fuck the Oscars. We don't give a shit about those, but we're very happy about this. All right. This is Color Casting signing off. Bye. Killer Casting is a concept created and produced by Lisa Zambetti. Audio engineering by Dean Laffin. Logo art by April Laffin. Website and big fat opinions courtesy of me, Brian Allen Hill.